invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Matthew as we return to our verse-by-verse exposition. And this morning we are in Matthew chapter 22, the first 14 verses. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Follow along as I read the text this morning. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. There is perhaps no greater grief to a Christian's heart than that of loved ones and friends who deliberately reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of us have been there. We know what that feels like. And certainly anyone who loves Christ longs to see others reconciled to him. I know what it's like over the years to plead with people on their deathbed to come to Christ, warning them of the wrath they are about to face, only to find them angrily growl at me, literally, convinced of their own goodness and too proud to confess Christ as Savior and as Lord, they slip into the flames, shaking their fist in God's face. Today's text vividly describes this very thing. For here today we will see, first of all, Israel, the people of promise, the people of divine blessing, rejecting The ultimate invitation, and that's what I've entitled this sermon to you this morning, the ultimate invitation. But also we will see a dramatic reminder to people of all ages who choose to decline God's invitation to his limitless mercy and his love and his grace. Those who decline that invitation when he offers it to them 
asking them to repent and to believe. Let me give you the context here this morning. The Jewish leaders now have been relentless in their attack of Jesus. They are dogging his every move. They continue to deny his deity and they reject his call to repentance. This is probably Wednesday of the Passion Week. Multitudes will be turning from adoration on Sunday when they cried out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And certainly by Wednesday, especially by Thursday, their adoration will turn to disdain as they cry for him to be crucified. This, by the way, is the third in a trilogy of parables. Jesus is again speaking in the temple. He's exposing the hypocrisy of the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, exposing their sin, exposing their self-will, their own personal agendas, their unbelief. And now what we have is Jesus speaking with undeniable clarity and with the force of divine truth. He paints the dramatic picture of the utter insanity of unbelief and the righteous judgment that it deserves. And this parable is so vivid, you can smell the stench of those who are dead in sin as you read it, as you study it. Now, this morning we're presented with what I would consider seven amazing theological themes that give testimony to the glorious character of God as well as to the staggering sinfulness of man. Let me give you the seven and we will elaborate on them. First, we're going to see, of course, the ultimate invitation. Secondly, we will see a stunning rejection. Thirdly, we will see loving forbearance. Fourthly, just retribution. Fifthly, we will see a new guest list. And number six, we will see a presumptuous guest. And finally, number seven, we will read of eternal judgment. And before we unpack this text, I have to say I, I am deeply grateful for the lengths to which God will go to reveal himself to us, because to understand the infinite mind of God is a mind boggling thing in and of itself. And here we see our heavenly father stooping down, shall we say, like a father would do with his child and putting us on his lap and revealing to us the mysterious truths of his glorious plan of redemption. Truths that we would never be able to understand in our finite minds and our sinful minds. And yet he does what many fathers have done and what many mothers will do. Take something that is complex and break it down into a simple story that we might grasp its truths. And only a loving God would be willing to stoop to our level to Go to such great lengths to simplify his eternal purposes and to enlighten our minds and our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we will all be attentive to these truths. So let's examine the text here and let each of these themes unfold. First of all, the ultimate invitation in verses one through three, Jesus answered, spoke to them again in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. Now, let's stop there. The kingdom of heaven would immediately grab the attention of the people because 
the Jews knew that the term heaven, this kingdom of heaven, was a substitute term for Yahweh, for Jehovah, the covenant name of Almighty God. And also the Jews were convinced that the kingdom of heaven belonged exclusively to them, regardless of the condition of their heart, as long as they went through their religious rituals and did their religious things, the kingdom belonged to them. And so these people knew that Jesus was addressing them. Now, the scene here is of a wedding feast that a king has prepared, prepared for his son and for a bride. By the way, this is not a reference to the church, to the bride of Christ. There is no parallel here to the marriage supper of the Lamb that we would read about, for example, in Revelation 19. So all of the listeners here in the temple would be captivated by this story. Now, you must understand their culture was a bit different than ours. Ancient weddings were like special holidays. Everyone anticipated them with great joy, with great excitement. And the wedding feast was especially exciting because it often lasted several weeks. Of course, life was difficult back then, and a wedding was considered kind of the ultimate escape. This was the highlight of one's year. And unlike the attitude that especially many men have in our culture, where it's like, oh boy, you've got to go to a wedding. In that culture, this was a social event that everybody longed to go to, that longed to attend. But, Dear friends, to be personally invited by the king as a special guest to attend a royal wedding. Well, my, this was an honor beyond one's imagination. This would leave people speechless with delight. This is unimaginable. This was a celebration to end all celebrations. This was indeed the ultimate invitation that no one would possibly decline. But notice the reaction at the end of verse 3. Those who had been invited were unwilling to come. Here we have, secondly, the stunning rejection. They were unwilling to come. Notice it doesn't say that they didn't receive an invitation or, they, they, or that they received the invitation and they misunderstood the invitation. It didn't say that, uh, that, that well, they, they wanted to come, but they couldn't. And so they would send their regrets it didn't say that they, they, they couldn't come because they couldn't afford a gift because there was nothing required but to come. But rather, the text says they were simply unwilling to come. Literally, they just chose not to come. What an inconceivable insult to the king and to his son. What ingratitude. Either that or a tragic consequence of insanity. But notice the loving forbearance of the king. While undoubtedly the king was, was disappointed, even offended, the king is nevertheless constrained by mercy, by love, by patience. And in verse 4, we even sense a tone of personal sadness and even hurt in his response. He says, again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And how did the invited guests respond to the king's gracious forbearance? 
Well, there were two different responses by two different groups. Group one was, shall we say, the group of indifference. Verse five, but they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. Paid no attention in the original language is literally denoting the idea of, uh, of, of ignoring something. It means to not even think about. It means to neglect something as if it has absolutely no bearing on one's life. These people were self-absorbed. They were self-centered. They were greedy materialists. They were consumed with their careers and their businesses. Their number one priority was their own personal agenda, not the king's. Certainly had no desire to honor the son. But if we look at the text, we see there's also a second group, a hostile group, verse 6, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. This is outrageous. This is inconceivable. This is more than just rude behavior. This is more than just selfish behavior. This was high treason. This is an act of rebellion. This is an act of murderous sedition. The multitudes must have gasped when they heard Jesus tell them what these two groups did, especially the latter group. And naturally, the only appropriate course of action for a king would be to punish such blatant wickedness. And so we see that his forbearance turns to number four, a just retribution. Notice verse seven, that the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. It's as if the king is saying, I offered you the very best of my generosity. I, I, I gave you the ultimate invitation. I was willing to lavish upon you the hospitality of a monarch. I, I invited you to my palace. I, I wanted to serve you the finest foods. I wanted to fellowship with you and treat you as my honored guest in the most fabulous celebration of a lifetime. But some of you not only spurned my invitation with granite indifference, but others literally tortured and murdered my emissaries. So enough is enough. The cup of my forbearance has run over and turned to the wine of justice. And now I am going to pour out upon you the full measure of my wrath. That's what the king is saying in essence. Now, what do these astonishing scenes illustrate? What did these things mean to those Jewish people standing before Jesus just a couple days before his crucifixion. Moreover, what do these scenes illustrate for us today? And dear friends, I fear we must remove our shoes at this point, so to speak, for indeed we're standing on holy ground here. Because what we are about to hear is literally the quintessential truth of all of the ages, the truth of the gospel. As God reveals it to us in this parable. First of all, the kingdom of heaven here is a description of those who have been united to God in faith. Those saints that have been set apart from sin unto God, serving him as Savior and Lord. 
And the king here is Jehovah God. The king represents the creator and the sustainer of the universe who reigns in uncontested sovereignty over his universe. The king of glory who was surrounded by cherubim ever ready to do his bidding, who is seated upon his throne right now in the third heaven, whose glorious presence would make the sun look dim in comparison. Dear friends, this is a reference to the thrice holy God of the universe. Holiness being the all-encompassing attribute of his glory. Because holiness portrays his consummate perfection. It portrays his, his eternal glory. It stands alone as the defining characteristic of his person. The summation of all of his attributes. Because Jehovah God, who is now represented here as the king, is the one who is utterly separate, absolutely other, of a completely different nature than we can even comprehend. This is why Moses spoke of him as the one who is majestic in holiness, awesome in, his, in praises, working wonders. And yet I would hasten to add that this is the same God who now is so filled with loving kindness, he would, he, he would condescend to our low estate to offer to us this simple parable. And in this simple parable, this ultimate invitation. And who is the king's son? Well, the king's son here is the Lord Jesus. This is the crown prince of glory. This is the object of the father's love. This is the one who was in the beginning, the Bible says, with the father. This is the one who was born in a manger, yet is the heir of all things. This is the one who is the Lord of hosts, who gave his life a ransom for many. Equally creator, equally God. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1, in verse 16, for by him, referring to Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Dear friends, dear friends, this is the son who deserves all of the honor and all of the praise and all of the glory. The son that came to do the father's will. This is the one, according to Philippians 2, who is to be highly exalted with the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus is the Son of God who conquered sin, who conquered Satan, who conquered death as our Savior. The one who paid the penalty for our sin, the one who forgives sins and chooses to remember them no more. Jesus, the, the bridegroom who came to enter into a holy union with a sinful people that he had to redeem, that he had to transform to make his bride and then to take his bride and make her a part of the royal family. Thus magnifying his love for sinners. This is the king's son. How could anyone refuse to celebrate such love? Such compassion. This concept is so poignantly pinned in Charles Wesley's great hymn. 
Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. My gracious master and my God assist me to proclaim to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. Dear friends, this is not some effeminate first century Jewish prophet. That is depicted by those who are a stranger to him. This is the second member of the triune Godhead, the son of the living God. It is also so appropriately penned in Edward Perrinet's great hymn. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race. Ye ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. He goes on to write, let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Who else could possibly deserve such honor? And who but a fool could possibly deny him? Who could refuse this father who desires no dowry for his son, who simply asks invited guests to humbly come to honor my son, to sit at the table of my grace, and I will even serve you for eternity. Come and rejoice in my presence. Dear friends, this is why this is the ultimate invitation. The ultimate invitation to the royal banquet that depicts here God's, God's call to sinners to be reconciled unto himself. Now please hear this. Only the gospel brings us into fellowship with God. You see, the Bible teaches that, that when sinners finally break over their sinfulness. And they plead for undeserved mercy. And they confess Christ as Savior and Lord. God instantly saves them. And suddenly there is this miracle of a new birth. We become a new creature in Christ. The old things pass away. New things come. The Bible says we have a new, a new nature. We have a new heart, a new mind, a new song. And in this transformation, there is a, a glorious metamorphosis that begins to occur where gradually we now as redeemed people still incarcerated in unredeemed humanness will begin to look more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We will gradually be conformed into his glorious image. And when this new birth occurs and when this fellowship occurs, mysteriously, the triune God takes up residence within us. In fact, Jesus promised in John fourteen twenty three, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now, listen to this. And my father will love him. And we will uh, we will come to him and make our abode with him. Friends, I cannot imagine a greater privilege than to have the triune God take up residence within me. This is the grand invitation here. Now, certainly those of you who know nothing of what I speak will never know until you are united 
to Christ in faith and you worship the King. But you will know this. You will hear a deafening silence in the midnight hour when you are awake and your conscience screams at you that you are not right with God. You will hear that. All saints will agree that indeed Christian fellowship is a blessed thing. This koinonia of the New Testament. This mutual sharing of life and of ministry. And what's amazing, according to 1 Corinthians 1.9, we read that God has called us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, as believers, we are united to Christ in a mystical union. A mystical union of love and, and joy and, and peace that finds expression in our relationship with other Christians. You might think of it as a small sample of a heavenly utopia that will ultimately come and be a full expression of this fellowship in the eternal kingdom of heaven. But you would think that anybody who would be invited to such a glorious fellowship, such a glorious festival, here depicted as a wedding feast, would come. But again, we look at this and we see that these invited guests were unwilling to come. They're indifferent, they're hostile, unimaginable. Now, who were these guests? Well, friends, these guests were his chosen people. The audience that now stood before him. The ones who were literally standing in the presence of the son of the king. These were the people who had been called out of the loins of Abraham in Genesis 12. From which Messiah had now descended. In fact, in Amos 3, 2, the prophet tells us that you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. This is God speaking through the prophet. You only referring to his covenant people. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. In other words, the Jewish people were the recipients of divine favor. They were recipients of the law. They were to be a witness people of his glory and his grace. In fact, as we study Ezekiel 16, as we did last week, we see that they were a family that, 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 that God chose out of the Canaanites. They were even unwanted. They were unloved. The text says that they were discarded like a newborn infant that nobody wanted, thrown into a field, squirming in their own blood. And that text says that I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. These were the guests that were invited. Now, the Jews that were listening to Jesus on that day knew that the wedding feast was a re reference to messianic blessing. In fact, you can read in the Talmud, as they had, that when Messiah would come and establish his earthly kingdom, he would inaugurate this great kingdom with a grand banquet for his chosen people. So these people understood what Jesus was saying at least at some level. But these people had no desire to come and honor the king and his son. You've got to keep in mind, these people wanted a king who would come and free them from the bondage of Rome, not from the bondage of sin. Likewise, many today are like those in the parable. Many people today are invited to the feast, invited to salvation 
but they're indifferent like verse five. They paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. You can go up here to the gas station right now and you can see all of the people pulling in with their ski boats and their fishing boats or see people with their motorcycles or all the things that they're going to do on a Sunday because they have no desire to honor the king and his son. They're indifferent. They're utterly self-absorbed with their own pleasures, with their own careers. Now, some might say, well, you know, I suppose serving Christ may have its benefits if, if all that religious stuff is true. But but frankly, I have bigger fish to fry. And frankly, I see myself as more more deprived than than depraved. And and I believe that ultimately my good is going to outweigh my bad. And God's going to cut me some slack if he even really exists. And besides that church up the road there and that church over there, I, they're all filled with hypocrites. I don't want to be a part of that. So people spend their whole life pursuing their career careers, preoccupied with matters that are eternally inconsequential. People live their short lives, have a little fun, have a little sorrow, and then they die. And most die in their sins. And then when they pass through the veil of this life to the next, those people are instantly confronted with the horrors of hell. Others today are like those in this parable that are hostile. Verse 6, those that seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. By the way, the slaves would be a reference to the Old Testament prophets of even uh, John the Baptist would have been included in that group. Certainly the apostles and other preachers. You see, the Jews killed them and anyone who spoke to them the truth. And likewise today, anyone who really preaches the gospel of Christ is going to be hated. Anyone who truly offers the ultimate invitation of the royal feast of sins forgiven and eternal fellowship with God and the glories of heaven, those people are going to be hated of course, you can water it down to say something else and everybody will love you. But if you truly preach the gospel as Jesus did, the same reaction will occur. And certainly those that are hostile would be those who are part of a false religion. And frankly, all religions apart from Christianity are false religions. In fact, if you look down through the annals of time, historically, you will see that false religions have been the primary persecutors of the church. You know, I would pause for a moment here and say to those of you who are perhaps without Christ. Again, I would invite you to the banquet to come and honor the son, to feast on the bread of life, to dine with the triune God. Because nothing else in life will ever satisfy your soul. Nothing else will fulfill some of those longings that you feel. But dear friends, that is, that is secondary to the real need. And the real need is to be saved from your sin. And to enter into that union with Christ. And to live in His presence forevermore. And I must add that only what's done for God's glory will matter for time and eternity. Whenever people just kind of live for their own life, they literally waste their time. 
And ultimately, it's an act of treason against the king of glory who has created us to live unto his glory. I think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, after rehearsing his lofty attainments and all of his academic and religious credentials as a Jew. Credentials, by the way, that were meaningless in the eyes of God. The Apostle Paul used the language of a of an accountant. And said this, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. And how sad to see people pursue wealth and fame like a dog chasing his tail. Empty lives, ultimately they will be forgotten lives, meaningless lives. How many people, when you drive by a cemetery, do you know or did you know? So many people indifferent to the king's servants who beckon them. And worse yet, so many people that live sinful lives condemned by God, souls that will never enjoy The king's favor. My friend, this is indeed a grand invitation. And to think about this, it's at no expense to you. In fact, there is nothing you can contribute to this gift of grace. That great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way, and I quote, The gospel is an an expensive business. The very heart of Christ was drained to find the price for this great festival. But it costs the sinner nothing. Nothing of money, nothing of merit, nothing of preparation. You come as you are to the gospel feast. For the only wedding dress required is freely provided for you. Just as you are, you are bidden to believe in Jesus. You have nothing to do but to receive his fullness. For to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. He goes on to say, you are not asked to contribute to the provision, but to be a feaster. At the divine banquet of infinite compassion. Friends, having come to the feast myself, and I know many of you can identify with this. Having come personally to to honor the king and his son who paid so dearly for the joy of my salvation. Having dined all of, of, of these years of my life at the table of his grace, enjoying his presence and sorrow as well as in joy. Having the Holy Spirit of God residing within me, helping me to understand the scriptures, giving me a biblical worldview, giving me the hope of heaven. Dear friends, it is beyond my ability to understand how anyone could deny such an invitation. Frankly, such insolence can only be attributed to the madness of sin. Well, even as the parable suggests, the invited guests refuse the ultimate invitation. There is a stunning rejection. They they spurn his loving forbearance. And the result, number four, is a just retribution. Notice verse seven. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies that could literally be translated troops and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. By the way, this this reminds me of another time when corruption and violence and 
and hypocrisy filled the earth. There were 120 years when Enoch and Noah preached repentance, calling evil men to repentance, all to no avail. And at that time in Genesis 6-3, God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. And you will recall the text, and we can see it even in the geological record. God flooded the entire earth, killing everyone. We estimate about 7 billion people, everyone except Noah and his family. Well, friends, likewise, for hundreds of years, the Jews and many Gentiles rejected the Old Testament prophets. For approximately a year, they rejected John the Baptist. For three years, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And after that, for about another 40 years, they rejected the apostles and other preachers. Well, finally, the king's grace had been spurned long enough. And true to his word, he sent in the troops. In A.D. 70, the Roman hordes came in under Titus. And they massacred virtually everyone in Palestine. They entered Jerusalem and they slaughtered 1.1 million Jews. They took their bodies and threw them over the walls of Jerusalem, piled them up in enormous heaps, and they burned the temple. And perhaps many of the people that were listening to Jesus on that day were a part of that group. My friends, God's forbearance has its limits. He will only be mocked so long. So with the rejectors who kindle the king's wrath now punished, we see verse or in verses eight and nine, a new guest list. And this would be the fifth illustration that has such theological significance. Notice notice in verses eight and nine. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Friends, here Jesus predicts an amazing mystery of the gospel, one that is described in several Old Testament passages and a number of New Testament passages. And it's namely this, that the invitation now would be offered to Gentiles, not just the Jews. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 9, beginning in verse 25, where where he is quoting Hosea the prophet. And there we read, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, my beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. In fact, in Romans 11, verse 25, the Apostle Paul cautions the Gentiles lest they become proud in the gospel that is now being offered to them. Because he tells them that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and thus all Israel will be saved. In other words, when that time of the Gentiles is over and when the Lord returns, we read in the prophetic literature that all of Israel will be saved at that time. God's not finished with his people. Never blur the distinction, dear friends, between Israel and the church. 
God has a separate plan for each of them that has amazing overlap. We read about this even in Ephesians 3 and verse 6, where the Apostle Paul tells us that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So now back to the parable. Jesus is predicting what would later become the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all of the nations. You see, now the gracious favor of the king is extended to a revised guest list, if I can put it that way. That that includes anyone and everyone in the streets. And now his emissaries are said, are told to go out and to find them, whether they're evil or good. Verse 10, and according to verse 8, those who were invited were not worthy. Now, mind you, the Jews were not worthy, not because they weren't good enough, because had they been better, then they would have been considered worthy. No, it's not because they weren't righteous enough on their own. No one is. The reason why they were not worthy is because they refused the invitation that had nothing to do with worth. Isn't that an amazing thought? It had everything to do with trusting in the merit of the son. You see, friends, the only dinner guests who will ever sit at the banquet hall of grace are those who have a personal faith in the provision of Christ alone. Those who are unworthy are all who despise the gospel. Those who refuse the gospel. And typically it's people who do not understand the gospel because I believe that no one could possibly fully grasp the truths of the gospel by the regenerating and illuminating power of the Holy Spirit and then deny it and then reject it. However, I frequently encounter those who mock the word as if they are some worthy critic of it. And invariably, I find that they are too ignorant to know that they are ignorant. They are utter strangers to the infallible record. Or at best, they're knowledgeable of only some pet portions of Scripture that they distort to justify their unbelief. But friends, make no mistake about it. Only those guests who long to honor the son will be in attendance of the monarch at the monarch's feast and glory. And notice verses 11 and 12. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Here now we see. The presumptuous guest, as I would call him. Now, we might ask, what what is this? What are these wedding clothes here? What wedding clothes? I thought there were no limitations. I I thought all you had to do is just show up here. What, What is this surprised dress code? Well, friends, obviously, the king had made provision for the proper attire for the wedding feast. You see, no one could be called off the streets and and possibly be expected to own clothes befitting for such a glorious celebration as the parable would indicate. And so the king would have to provide. But obviously this man thought that he had some garments that he had chosen that would be acceptable. No, thank you, king. I'll wear my own clothes here. I understand you have offered something, but I've got something that I think will be most fitting My friends, please hear this. The only clothes 
that can be worn in the presence of a holy God are the robes of righteousness that can only be imputed to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the robes that have been supplied by the King's mercy and grace. In fact, in Isaiah 61 and verse 10, the prophet tells us, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Now catch this, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Dear friends, even as Adam and Eve tried to cover their guilt and their shame, the guilt and shame of their sin with the fig leaves of their own efforts, only to find that they had to be replaced by garments of skin, secured by the shedding of blood, the shedding of innocent blood, and provided by God. So too, no man can defy the protocol of a holy God and attend his celebration of grace apart from wearing the clothes of righteousness. You cannot come in and wear the attire of self-righteousness. Therefore, the only wedding garment that can please the king would be the garment of the imputed righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, theologically, you will recall, we call this justification, where God and his infinite mercy and love because of our faith in Christ imputes or declares us righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. It is a judicial act of God where he declares a sinner righteous and a sinner is no longer exposed to the penalty of sin, but rather we are restored to divine favor. So those refusing the king's provision provision will meet the same fate as the imposter in Jesus parable. And we see that in verse 13. Where the king says, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness in that place. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This leads us to the very final point. The final theological theme of the character of God and the staggering sinfulness of man. That theme of eternal judgment. Here, my friends, is the horrific end for all who refuse the ultimate invitation of salvation. For all who refuse to come on the terms provided by the king. And indeed, as we read in the text, many are called. In other words, many are invited to the gospel of grace. But like those invited in the parable, many are unwilling to come. And therefore, by their own choice, they forfeit the kingdom of God. Those who respond to his gracious provision will be those whom he has drawn in his sovereign choice. And herein is the perfect balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Yet another doctrine that is held in tension by the inscrutable mysteries of God. Well, for all of us who love Christ, we can rejoice in the grand and ultimate invitation that has been given to us. And we, we can look forward with great hope 
with a blessed hope to that eternal banquet in his presence forevermore. But I would close in saying this, and I say so with all, all humility, but with utmost boldness. Dear sinner, I beg you to come to the wedding feast before it's too late. Set aside your indifference and throw away your sword of rebellion because you know what is true when you hear it. And I would invite you to accept the undeserved pardon that was purchased by the Savior's own blood. Come and dine with the King, dine with the Son, dine with the saints for eternity. Let's pray together. Father, again, we rejoice in the glorious truths that have been revealed to us again today. And we do so with a humble reverence, knowing that it is solely by your mercy and your grace that this invitation has even been extended, much less that you caused us to believe. Lord, we praise you for all of this. And I pray especially for those that do not know you as Savior. Lord, won't you convict their hearts? Won't you bring them to an understanding of their sin? Cause them to set aside their indifference and their hostility. And save them this day for your glory. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.